This episode contains a description of sexual abuse. Listener discretion is advised. In 1992, nearly 500 survivors of clergy sex abuse gathered in Chicago from around the world. Following decades of sexual abuse by priests, it was the first gathering of its kind. The name of the historic conference was Breaking the Silence. The silencing of Catholic sex abuse victims has come up often in my interviews for this podcast. It's yet another stain on the church's handling of the sex abuse crisis. And it's no surprise that Breaking the Silence was the chosen theme of the first large-scale gathering of survivors. Silencing took place in many different ways. If they were very young children, you could see how the silencing might take place in the context of families or communities. Robert Orsi is a professor of religious studies and history at Northwestern University. One of his research areas is clergy sex abuse in the Catholic Church from the perspective of survivors. I've heard the story from many survivors of saying that they went to speak to a teaching sister in their school and the sister told them to be quiet, not to talk like that about father. Uh, or they tried to tell other priests and other priests uh, just said, no, be quiet. And, and parents, relatives, uh, there was a real resistance to hearing these stories. And sometimes they silenced themselves because they knew that they weren't going to get anywhere or they were afraid to speak. I heard from many survivors that they did not even have the language. They didn't know what had happened to them. They didn't know what language to give to this or what to call it. Many men felt that I've spoken to felt uncomfortable talking about homosexual experiences with priests because they did not consider themselves gay and they didn't want to be, they didn't want their, their loved ones to think of them as gay and so they kept silent. The burden of shame survivors carried for so long uh, is really terrible. The church discouraged abuse survivors from coming forward. They saw the victims as troublemakers, liabilities, enemies. For years, the church exchanged modest sums of money for non-disclosure agreements, signed legal documents that threatened drastic consequences if they ever spoke of their abuse to anyone. The church literally paid sex abuse victims for their silence. Welcome to Crisis, a podcast from The Catholic Project. I'm Karna Lozoya. In this episode, we'll hear from two survivors of sex abuse, James and Teresa. The more I study the history of clergy sex abuse in the Catholic Church, the more I realize how much we owe to the courageous witness of sex abuse victims who have come forward to tell their story. As we listen to these stories, we must remember that James and Teresa are real people sharing their lived experiences. I'm grateful for their willingness to share their stories with us. I hope you are too. My name is James Grine. I'm 61 years old. I live in Northern Virginia. I am the man now who was a boy at 11 years of age who was abused by Theodore McCarrick. James is one of seven children. He grew up in New Jersey, and his parents were devout Catholics, going to Mass every week and confession every month. When we went on family trips, uh, 
my father would make us say the rosary when I wanted to listen to the Mets ball games. I was a little bit upset about that. But, you know, I realized what he's trying to do then. He's trying to get our, our focus uh, away from the commercial world and into God more often. Uh, I had a great uh, childhood up until I was about 11 years of age. I was very outgoing, uh, strong, good athlete, confident, had a lot of good uh, ability about myself, and had a really good sense of who I was, even as a child. Uh, I was an altar boy. My brothers were altar boys. Uh, I was a lector at one point. I became a Eucharistic minister at one point. Uh, God was a very important part of my life. A central figure of James's Catholic upbringing was Father Theodore McCarrick, his uncle's best friend since high school. James's grandfather was McCarrick's patron. He helped to pay for McCarrick's high school and university education, and even seminary training. James referred to McCarrick in an interview as part of the very fabric of his family. McCarrick baptized James. Was that a point of pride for you, that McCarrick had baptized you? Absolutely, because um, he didn't baptize my brother, little brother Mark. I'm the only kid in the family who was baptized by McCarrick. And so that I was his special little boy from the get-go. I was a special connection for him in the family. And so it, I was in awe of him. I, I really wanted him to know who I was. You know, when you compete with three brothers and three sisters, it's, I wanted to stand out some way, somehow. McCarrick started to abuse James when he was 11 years old. In, in 1969, he exposed himself to me, and I thought nothing of it. And I told nobody. According to a written statement James submitted to the Archdiocese of New York, the incident took place after a day of swimming in the family pool. James returned to his room to change, and McCarrick entered when James was fully naked. He turned away. McCarrick then exposed himself, saying, See, we're both the same. The next incidents of abuse took place at family celebrations of Thanksgiving and Christmas, at James's grandparents' house. McCarrick took James upstairs for confession and touched and kissed his penis, calling it a blessing. This pattern of sexual touching during confession continued for years. He needed me to become closer to God through him. He said that he was my pathway. And wanting to be liked by him, wanting to be appreciative of him, wanting to be seen by him, I agreed to things. I let things happen, and I said that this must be normal. Because Dad said he was going to be the best thing for me. What happened to me at age 11, 12, and 13 is that the self-confident gentleman that I was in sports and in social life and being able to talk to my brothers and sisters left. He was gone. He was gone. He left somewhere. And when I was 13 years of age, 
But Carrick abused me in a way that I will never, ever forget. And uh, he took away all my innocence in a parking lot in Pescadero, California. James wrote about this experience in his statement. McCarrick took James on a car ride, and this time he touched James until he ejaculated. James had never experienced an orgasm before. McCarrick and James drove home. When James tried to tell his father what happened, McCarrick interrupted, calling James an idiot, claiming that he had spilled his soda he bought him and ruined the interior of his car. James was sent to his room. I tried to tell my father that day exactly what happened. My father didn't believe me. McCarrick groomed James to be completely dependent on him, alienating him from the rest of his family. McCarrick just put a, put a wedge between my dad, my whole family, and I, so that I became a distant relative to everybody in the family, and I became a distant person to myself. I no longer had any confidence in myself. And that's what mostly disturbs me, the wedge that he put in there the way he groomed me to a point where he was more important than anybody else, but he was manipulating my mind to a point where he was giving me some attention and taking, taking it away, and it's called abandonment. I felt abandoned, and I needed to go back and see him. And the crazy thing today is that there are times when I have problems in my life, and I think I say to myself, I gotta call Teddy up to find out what's going on. That's how deep it is. And so as a kid, in your awkward teenage years, when he's giving you orgasms and you're not really happy about the situation, you don't know what to do, your parents aren't listening to you, and you're lost. And the great athlete that I was, was barely hanging on. My grades stink. I try to, I'm in an all, all boy private school in Portola Valley, California. I tell another priest there and he abuses me. So that taught me one thing. Nobody is getting inside my head. Nobody. James turned to alcohol and drugs. He spent much of his life in and out of hospitals and detox centers. He struggled with authority figures, which made it difficult to hold a job. He got married, but it ended. James tried to take his own life multiple times. James told me he never wanted his mother to know the truth about McCarrick. She idolized him. It's one of the reasons James never came forward. When she died in 2012, McCarrick said her funeral mass. After the funeral, James confronted McCarrick, threatening to go public. And he said to me, who's ever going to believe you? Don't you know who I am? I'm the most powerful man in the world. I will destroy you in the press. And if that doesn't work, I'll have some friends come over and visit you. I turned. I cried. And I realized I could never do anything against this man. That was in 2012. In 2018, the Archdiocese of New York found accusations of sexual assault made by a former altar boy against Cardinal McCarrick credible and substantiated. 
when uh, my little brother Mark sent me a, an article about how McCarrick had been found credibly guilty of something by the altar boy in, in St. Patrick's. He said, everybody's going to believe you now. You need to tell them. Yeah, it was, it was time to say, but it'd been buried for so long. You know, I spent three days on my knees, brought back a lot of PTSD, brought back a lot of memories that I didn't want to remember anymore. Brought back a lot of areas of my life which I'm not really happy about. I didn't know then, but I know now it was the biggest cleansing that God ever gave me. Got it all out. Got to tell somebody else. We wrote it all down. And then I started to talk to other people about it. But the greatest thing was when my sister Karen said, I'm so sorry. I believe everything you said. A freeing moment. When my brothers and sisters surrounded me and said, everything is going to be okay now. It was a freeing moment. James did speak out against McCarrick in a big way. In 2018, the New York Times published his story. The article played an important role in McCarrick's downfall. Throughout this podcast, we've referred to 2018 as a crisis. But James told me 2018, for him, was an incredibly great year. A time of cleansing and rebuilding. Almost 50 years after McCarrick started to abuse him, James was finding his voice. Uh, my name is Teresa Pitt-Green, and I am a survivor of clergy abuse by multiple priests when I was young through when I was a teen. Today, Teresa runs an organization that reaches out to survivors of sexual abuse. Spirit Fire is the name of our organization. We're also known as The Healing Voices, which is a magazine that's online, that's a kind of an online mediated magazine where all people can come together and talk about their experience of hurt in the church. Teresa's own experience with sexual abuse began in Pennsylvania, where she grew up. The setting for my abuse was in a, in a small town. I was the youngest of a number of, of women, daughters, who were old enough that they left the town before all of this began, or they were almost in college or something, but they were very much removed. I'm old enough that my parents were part of the World War II generation, and my father fought in Burma and never talked about it, but it was one of the worst theaters of the war. My mother trusted her faith as much as she could to get through those years. My parents, their parents were part of a generation that were the immigrants to the United States from, the, from Ireland. The church was foundational in surviving such upheaval. And my, I often say my dad would talk about having defeated evil, but on a global scale. And they didn't expect it to show up in our home, and they sure didn't expect to show it up with priests. So what would happen is, as good Irish Catholics, they entertained priests at night. My father 
settled us in a town where he took a treacherous ride to and from work so that we could go to Catholic school. And then my mother, devoted as she was to the church, became the, the rectory secretary. So I would go from school to the rectory after school and then home, and there were priests everywhere. The abuse started when Teresa was six or seven years old. And unfortunately, my town was the place where they sent all of the priests who were the abusers to be close enough to watch. And unfortunately, those priests cycled through my home. And when they, I unfortunately was the age group of the different interests of the different abusers. And where I wasn't, where the, there were two abusers who abused boys, um, they were physically abusive to me because I saw so that I was, all of that was terrible. And what I would tell people is, you know, abuse is hell. And I don't know how I got through it. And I, I, I got through it probably in part because of my dog. But one of the reasons I didn't tell my parents that people have a hard time believing and understanding is when you, once you're abused, you believe the abuser because he's the priest who tells you you're so terrible that my thought was if I could just hide it from my family, they would still love me. So it's really important to understand that you get you get inculcated really fast. And people often interpret that as, well, you kept going back for a sexual interaction, but no, you kept going back every time to be destroyed because you thought there was nothing left. And it's really important for people to understand, to look at those events as sexual and not as really violent as they were, is to really be looking at abuse with an ignorance of what the victim goes through. Now, so for, you know, from six or seven through 18, that was my life and my fate. You know, then one, one of the abusers tracked me down in college and scared me, and eventually you end up hanging out with people who are really mean and scary to keep that guy away, but then life starts off on the wrong foot, and it takes a lot of years to come back from that. Her first attempts to report didn't go well. I had made my attempt to report. Uh, there were eight abusers in my past, and I had made my attempt to report in the 90s, early 90s, with not a lot of success. Although now I'm older, I'm almost old, and I can look back and see they tried. They just failed. They didn't know how. I asked Teresa what it was like for her to live through the sex abuse scandal of 2002. So when, when the stuff came out of Boston, I was kind of jaded. Prior to that time when I was watching lawsuits start to build in other areas, that's what really woke me up that I wasn't the only person who'd been abused. I really thought it was just me when I was first, when I first escaped the hellhole of that time. I really thought I had brought it on myself and that that was me. And it took probably 10 years to really believe that there were others, and that was only through lawsuits that were in the press. But by the time it got into Boston and and the whole Spotlight series came out and that, that really 2001 and 2002 hit, um, it was kind of like I'm glad everybody's catching up, but I'm already deep into therapy, deep into 12 steps, suffering terribly from the effects of abuse. And I just kind of watched in shock Having gone through it, I couldn't imagine that this would be so widespread, that such depravity could riddle our world. But, you know, I just thought, wow, I'm, I'm glad people will finally get it. And they didn't. And bishops didn't. 
and um, and and I, I I struggled with that. Even psychologists did. Teresa may have been disillusioned with church leadership, but she describes her faith journey as one that kept leading her back to the Catholic Church. I just was a high-functioning, high-driven, smart, fair person who was in and out of Catholic churches and was a Buddhist and was an Episcopal and tried every other faith and kept sneaking back to adoration for the Eucharist because I knew that was the truth. Adoration is the worship of Jesus Christ in the Eucharist outside of Mass. Many parishes have adoration chapels where the faithful often go to pray in silence before the Blessed Sacrament. And the beauty of the Eucharist and the Word, who is God, is that in a world where you see nothing but lies, um, there's one word that doesn't lie. And that's the one I kept coming home to. It may have been home, but Teresa didn't always feel welcomed by the Catholic community. I'll ask the lay people to really reflect on this, that, you know, you weren't really great to us back then either. I mean, I, I remember crawling in to adoration, which was always safest, because you could look around and you knew when people were coming at you, and you didn't have to really look at a priest on the on the altar. And I would, you know, be there just close to suicide at certain points, and you'd hear over your back to people talking about those survivors and how they're, or those victims and how they're after money. Now, I never sued the church, but I, I sat there and had to hear it, and I didn't come back for a long time. Around 2003, Teresa developed a friendship with a few priests and even a bishop in her area. And they really captured my trust over time. And um, Father Mealy once said to me he thought that I should use my talents to help other survivors heal. He gave me opportunities to speak, and they really encouraged me to write. And just when you see people realize that they can integrate faith into a really pretty healthy recovery, but how much that catalyzes a whole new level of healing, you get kind of hooked, and you can't see any better way to use your time. Teresa started Spirit Fire with another clergy abuse survivor, Luis Torres. I asked her about the work of Spirit Fire. You know, people want a 10-step program or whatever it may be, and it's not that. It's remembering that Jesus is our friend and how to be friends with each other. In a place where all trust has been lost for good reason, it's, it's, it's learning how to heal together, which includes communication, helping God be incarnate in our words with one another that are believable again. And I don't know that I'll see the, see the healing from my work in my lifetime, but the fact is we have to start together now. That brings me to my next question. We hear a lot about justice for survivors. What, do, what does that look like? What are we talking about when we say justice for survivors? Boy, I, that's a tough one. Um, I, I, I wish, and this is where Luis, my, my ministry partner, is much better because he believes in justice in this, in this time. Um, and I, I'll speak, I don't speak usually for other survivors because I usually speak just for me. But I know a lot of survivors believe that this has to go through court the, the abusers, even the ones that are, are old or dead, need to go through court. I get it. And I certainly believe that there needs to be some financial restitution as well as pastoral care for people who want that. Not everybody wants it. Um, and I believe certainly that any any abuser needs to be 
completely kept away from anyone he would abuse. But, you know, I gave up on justice. I mean, and, and I don't look for justice in this world. And that's why I can do what I do. I'm not looking for even the right to forgive the people who hurt me. You don't believe in justice or you don't believe it's necessary or you think it's in God's hands. I think the only justice that's real in my life, and this is I really want to emphasize, I, the only justice I will ever receive is what God will hand me. Um, again, my survival, you know, I'm older, so the abusers we're talking about are long gone. And, uh, you know, I don't know what the justice would be. I mean, what you, you, aside from the other justice would be all of the abusers would be converted so deeply that the rest of their life they would bear the burden of what they caused me and God. Okay, that would be justice. But I, I just, I gave up on justice a long time ago in this, in this life. And I really support survivors who are looking for it because it's like they have, they have a vision I don't have. They have a, maybe they've got an eye I don't have. I don't, I don't see it, but I'll do everything I can to help them find it. After the break, we'll talk more about survivors' experiences with Robert Orsi, Teresa, and a clinical social worker at Catholic University. We'll be right back. I was honestly surprised when I heard Teresa's answer about justice. I thought that every victim survivor sought justice and healing. Actually, isn't that what we all want? Survivors have proven to be somewhat controversial because I think people really want to see this crisis as behind us, uh, as something in the past. Robert Orsi, professor at Northwestern University. Remember that as part of his research, Orsi has been meeting with survivors of clergy sex abuse for the last 15 years. One of the first things I had to learn, I, and this was very striking because it was like my first encounter with survivors. I went to a, one of these Monday night meetings of survivors in Chicago, and uh, I mistakenly used the word healing. And I had no idea really at the time. I mean, I had no idea that there was a, I didn't know the, the complexity of the nomenclature. So I just casually said something about healing. And boy, did I get jumped on. They really didn't like it. They referred to it as the H word. And uh, I think the reason they don't, they don't want that or they, they are resistant to the word healing, especially as it's used by others. I mean, they might be willing to say about themselves, I am, I am more healed now, but I think they are reluctant to have others say, you have been healed. Because healing implies some kind of closure, and I don't think they, they are not ready for closure, and they're particularly not ready for the church to have closure. When Orsi spoke, I remember thinking of how memorials of tragedies or disasters often urge us to never forget. They want others to recognize that they have seen aspects of the Catholic Church, aspects of Catholic authority, of Catholic power, of clerical power, they have been the victims of that, and they don't want that to go away. They want to be witnesses to that. And by being ever-present witnesses to the evil of clergy abuse, they go against our inclination to move on too quickly. So they are the unhealed in that sense. They live in the church as the unhealed. And as such, they are an open, it's as if they are an open wound in the church. And 
I think the church as the people of God and the church as the hierarchy uh, is made very uncomfortable by their presence. Not only are survivors an uncomfortable presence in the church, they are also often uncomfortable being present in church. Because so much of the abuse took place, using Robert Orsi's words, in a Catholic way, that is, by a priest, many times within a sacramental context, it can even make something as ordinary as going to Sunday Mass a traumatic experience. To learn more, we reached out to Melissa Grady, a clinical social worker and associate professor at Catholic University's National Catholic School of Social Service. I've been working with individuals who've experienced lots of different types of trauma, and in particular sexual trauma, for a number of years. Grady explained that there are lots of different ways sexual abuse can affect people. For example, experiencing post-traumatic stress is common for survivors of sexual abuse. She identified four signs of PTSD, as defined by the American Psychiatric Association. The first is hyperarousal, and that is feeling jumpy or anger outbursts where you're easily triggered in some way. The other is intrusive thoughts where you have flashbacks or nightmares, things that pop into your head that you just can't control, um, and you don't want them there. They feel very intrusive. Flashbacks from the trauma? or Flashbacks from the trauma. So it might be um, a smell that then... The cologne of the, the cologne. person. It might be um, the time of day and somebody was looking at a clock when it happened, or there's a shadow that goes across a wall and it reminds them of something. The, uh, the third category is um, negative thoughts and feelings. So feelings of not feeling safe or feeling hopeless or feeling feelings of depression. Um, also thoughts of... I'm never going to be safe. This is never going to get better. And they may have thoughts of, if if I, if, you know, an example of, if it was a priest, if I can't trust a priest, who can I trust? So the world then seems not safe anywhere because those are the people you're supposed to trust the most. And then the final category is avoidance. And usually it's avoidance of triggers. So. People may avoid going outside. People may avoid being in intimate relationships. Or avoid going to Mass. Or avoid going to Mass, yes. Avoid being around even things like incense that might remind them of Mass. Grady said triggers are something those who experience sexual abuse will have to live with for the rest of their lives. I think one of the things that I talk a lot with my clients about is that this isn't something they're going to be able to sweep under the rug or Photoshop out of the picture or just sort of, uh, you know, in their timeline of life, just extract it somehow. This is part of their history. This is part of their identity. Part of the work is being able to accept that this has been an experience for you and to understand how it impacts you and how to integrate it into your life as you move forward in your life. And I don't know that anybody sort of quote unquote gets past it because every stage of life is gonna bring up something For Teresa, 
her relationship with other survivors helps her to get through the tough moments. When you trigger, no one gets it like a survivor. Like I can say to Luis, I triggered, or he can tell I triggered when we're talking. And we immediately know how to help each other. And there are a lot of things we can say to each other as survivors that you, the church can't. Even talking about what is sin, even talking about what it is to be saved. I'm sorry, but the church has really lost the capacity to be trusted that way. And yet it's still a message we need. So we need each other. With all due respect to the church, meaning the hierarchy, but also all the laity, is you guys still don't get it. And I'll tell you something else. You can tell you don't get it because you don't know how dark it is. And none of you know the joy of being recovered in our Lord. And to the degree that everybody in solidarity shares our woundedness, I'm going to tell you, you're, you're, you're crazy not to listen to us because we walked this path. We, we understand it, but none of, so, so, so few don't realize that at the other end there is a resurrection and new life. It's hard work, but there's no reason to be afraid. And so it's not to say that anyone should feel guilty or feel dispirited about facing this now at all. But it's just important to remember the arc of disservice to victims goes very far back. And if there are victims that just can never trust again, I really understand it. And that we all bear that. And I bear it with the church because I am part of the church. And not to be, not to be disheartened, but just to stop and learn We are going to end this episode with a prayer that Teresa composed for survivors. My prayer is for survivors of abuse by clergy and others in the church, as well as for all who have been abused as children or suffered other trauma or harm. May we find a steady path toward healing in a network of uplifting support and healthful relationships that we may be sustained in our grieving of childhood and all other things that are lost to us. May we overcome any addiction, manage any chronic illness, grow strong in our daily routines, move beyond any toxic relationship, and grow deeper in any bond with those who affirm us. May we learn to manage wounds and serve generously with our talents and gifts as wounded healers now, bringing others closer to the Lord with our testimonies of survival and new life. May we take stock every day of the blessings in the here and now, especially learn to see and to appreciate our own talents and our many gifts, our resilience and our potential. We ask this in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. Amen. Next time, the Dallas Charter has been hailed as a great reform in the U.S. Catholic Church. It sets out policies and procedures meant to prevent abuse and to deal with it effectively. We'll explore how the Charter has changed the way the Church operates and whether these changes have led to a safer Church. From the Catholic Project at the Catholic University of America, you're listening to Crisis. Our podcast team includes myself, Colonel Zoya, Executive Producer Stephen White, Producer Jeff Gosser, 
and communications manager and writer Sarah Perla. Sound designed by Paul Veitkus. Music courtesy of APM Music. Our theme song was composed by Gautam Shrikashan. Marketing and distribution provided by Jeff Umbro of The Podglomerate. Cover art by Tom Grillo. And a very special thank you to all of our guests. For an episode guide or for more information about The Catholic Project, go to thecatholicproject.org. If you've been sexually assaulted, you can receive confidential support 24-7 through the National Sexual Assault Hotline at 1-800-656-HOPE. That's 1-800-656-4673. If the abuse is related to the Catholic Church, you can also contact your diocese victim assistance coordinator. Contact information for each diocese is available at usccb.org forward slash VAC.